Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Turn the book I borrowed. Finished already? Oh, I couldn't put it down. Have you got anything new? <laughs> Not since yesterday. That's all right. I'll borrow this one. That one? But you've read it twice. Well, it's my favorite. Far off places, daring sword fights, magic spells, a prince in disguise. <laughs> if you like it all that much, it's yours. But, sir. I insist. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Look, there she goes, that girl is so peculiar. I wonder if she's feeling well. With a dreamy, far-off look. And her nose stuck in a book. What a puzzle to the rest of us is Belle. Oh, poor Belle. She just... Boy, Paige O'Hara is a good singer, isn't she? Poor Belle. She just wants to read her books and date the beast and... Hang around with Jerry Orbach. I haven't really seen the movie in a while. <laughs> I don't remember everything that happens. But I'm pretty sure that's all she wants to do. And these people just get involved, you know? Anyway, it's a great affirmation of reading in that. And let me just tell a quick story before I introduce our guests. So when I was in, the, I think, the fourth grade, either that or I was just finishing graduate school. I'm not sure. But when I was in the fourth grade, I read all of the Hardy Boy books. There were 43 of them. Uh, and so I read all of them. Uh, there are many more now. But... Um, at some point in there, I decided I would buy a Hardy Boy book, and I'd never bought a book before. Uh, and I, <laughs> and I, I gathered up change. There were pennies involved in this purchase, and more than 10 pennies were involved in this purchase. Anyway, <laughs> this is such a sad little vignette. I gathered up all my little change, and I went down to the Huntington's Bookstore in West Hartford Center. I could walk to the bookstore. Uh, and it was presided over by a wonderful man who went on to become kind of a mentor to me. His name was Isaac Epstein. He's not with us anymore. And so I spread all, <laughs> all of my change <laughs> all over the thing. And I had with me, a, you know, the mystery of the haunted cave with the pirate skull and the missing key. I don't know what it was called. And so <laughs> Isaac, you know, when people are counting up your change on the counter and they just move it all around with their finger. <laughs> So he he moves it all around and he looks up at me and he goes, are you familiar with the idea of sales tax? And it turned out I was not, nor did I have anything other than the change I had brought. And Isaac, being the mensch that he was, just ate the sales tax uh, and I went on to buy many, many, many books from him over the course of my lifetime. Uh, but, you know, when you're reading – well, I want to get to our guests here, but I just, by way of getting to our guests here, I want to say it was the opinion of my teachers that I was reading garbage. I was reading garbage because <laughs> I was reading Hardy Boy books. First of all, they don't know who wrote those books. Nobody knows who wrote those books. Like Franklin W. Dixon was, you know, Samuel Beckett could have written one of those books. Uh, nobody knows. Anyway, it was garbage. But I was reading. Uh, here to talk about reading. We're going to talk about sort of who decides who reads what uh, when it comes to children's literature. Carol St. George uh, is a professor of teaching and curriculum and director of reading and literacy at the Warner School of Education 
at the University of Rochester. Uh, Adam Gidwitz is back with us. He's been with us before. Best-selling author of A Tale Dark and Grim uh, and its companion. I do the audiobooks. So, uh, and its companions as well as The Inquisitor's Tale. The Unicorn- I wish you did the audiobooks. <laughs> the Unicorn Rescue Society. Uh, he's also the creator of the podcast Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest. Uh, produced the adaptation of A Tale Dark and Grim for Netflix. And he's uh, currently working uh, on a, a new book called um, a medium. It's called, the title is Medium Long with Poisonous Snakes. Uh, that's his next book. It's actually not your next book, but it is something a kid told you was like his idea of the perfect kids book, right? Uh, yeah, and in fact, it sounds like uh, you and I should write that one together. It's a good one. <laughs> Medium long with poisonous snakes. I can just see that flying off the shelves. So I want to talk to both of you about this. It seems to me we're going to talk about banned books in a few minutes. But to me, that's the extreme. There's a kind of soft power exerted, Adam, by just adults in your life, your ter- your parents, your teachers, whoever, saying, not that one, this one. I mean, that's very much a conversation that goes on between adults and children uh, about books. And having read what you have to say about this, I think you and I are of a similar mind. But, you know, let's talk about the usefulness of that kind of adult curation of what children read. What are your thoughts? Yeah, this is a very personal conversation to me uh, on many levels. It has been for a long time, but it's become acutely personal to me recently, ever since my daughter turned seven and a half. So I have been writing books for the last uh, 13 years, publishing them for children. And often they are dark and they are scary. And yeah, um, medium long with poisonous snakes sounds like a book I would have written and I would like to write. So I have long been making the argument that children know what they need. Just like when you're reading Pat the Bunny to a one-year-old and they insist on hearing it over and over and over again until you wish you didn't have eyes to read with. The reason they do that is because there's something in that book that they need. They need to conquer, master, wrap up in their brains. And then suddenly one day, like a miracle, they don't want it anymore. They're done with it. (laughs) So they know what they need. And the same goes for a 13-year-old kid who picks a book off the shelf. And we need to let them find what they need because they know it. They're going to start reading. And if it's not for them, if it doesn't have that thing that they are needing to process at this time in their lives... They won't read it. So right now, my seven-year-old daughter is really into graphic novels aimed at middle schoolers. I don't really want her to read those books. There's a lot of kissing. Kissing is gross. She shouldn't be reading about it. But there's something in those books where she came down this morning, like screaming at us in a rage, just in a mood. And then I was like, do you you need to read a graphic novel? And she did. And she just felt better for the rest of the morning. So they know what we need. They need even when we adults, even their parents sometimes think we know better. So Carol St. George, chime in here. I mean, is just sort of a hands off, read what you want approach perfect? Or does there need to be some kind of gentle guidance, making sure kids find some of the really good stuff? I agree a lot with what Adam is talking about. Um, you want to um, have kids have motivation to read and choice is a really important factor in increasing motivation. I have to I have to laugh about your story about the Hardy Boys because you know, as you do know, uh, Franklin Dixon didn't exist no. and Carolyn Keene did not exist for the Nancy Drew books. And it was all because of gender, right? Boys wouldn't want to read books about uh, girl characters and vice versa. So when we think about what is considered acceptable and for whom, you know, that changes with time and, and society's values. So that all comes into play here when we're talking about banned books and and parents' decisions. You know, 
well, I don't want to get too political, but I tend to do that. Um, so when we're talking about age appropriate, for example, which Adam was just saying, his daughter's reading graphic novels, which might not be, quote, age appropriate. But that's just kind of a, a veiled attempt at pushing values and um, beliefs, which is fine if you want to do that for your own kid, just not on everybody else's kids. So um, I I think I, I agree that we need to let kids choose the books that they want to that they're interested in when we when we offer them that that choice it really allows them to have a joy i love that you started off with the song from bell um because i think about what does it mean what do we mean when we say a kid is a reader do we turn kids off do teachers you know you become automatically the teacher's pet or a nerd if you're a quote reader so there's that 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 song just you know, makes me think of that all the time because I'm very cautious about words. And that brings us up into reading. And I could go on and on because literacy is so important. It's literally life-changing having um, kids be able to read. And then you think about all the people who couldn't read, you know, women and slaves and through through history. And then you think about the reasons that we want people to read. Start off because we wanted people to read Bible uh, verses. If you think about the horn books, they were Bible verses. And then we wanted a literate um, society so that they could read manuals for wartime. So we think about all of these things that come into play when we're talking about books and what people read and what we want children to read and you know how how to decide what is um, appropriate. And you know, I know you started with mirrors and, and windows, and that's a big part of my my work, because having children see themselves in a book is so self, you know, affirming. And for so long, a period of time, we haven't, just like Adam was saying with, with his daughter, she wants to see herself. She wants to, to understand the world and how she plays a part in it. But it's also a window. So we're seeing into other people's lives. We're seeing perspectives and, and opinions and, and lives. And, and, and it's changing, which is why people want to ban books, right? Because it's so threatening. And I guess I'm going on too long. I don't mean to do that. <laughs> well, let's do two things here. Um, one of them, Adam, is that there's no such thing as universal appeal or an evening out of sensibilities. I, at the age that your daughter is at, would not have been able to read the graphic novel, not just because of the kissing, which I agree is gross, but also just <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that I just wasn't a particularly brave kid. I was easily scared and cowed, particularly at that age. And so so we have to sort of kind of start there, too, that the idea of making rules that are going to fit children. I mean, children are an incredibly diverse and weird and motley group of people. It's so true. Um, the, I think the only books that appeal to every child are my books. Other than those, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Other, other, um, it's so true. And and children are diverse within themselves from minute to minute. You know, um, I bring down a book for my daughter and she's like, not that one. And I was like, you loved this one yesterday. <laughs> but today she needs something different. Um, and so allowing kids to navigate that. Um, to uh, piggyback on something that uh, Professor St. George said, you know, uh, so she was describing mirrors and uh, windows. And this is um, a theory from Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop. Professor St. George, mm -hmm. please correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong. Um, and, you know, so one idea is that a child can see themselves in a book. That's a mirror. 
a window is to look into somebody else's life. And I've heard recently people have been adding to that phrase, sliding glass doors. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. How, how, do, um, how do the sliding glass doors work? How do those work? You, you transport yourself into a story and you feel empathy. And, and I, many of us have gotten into a book and we've just lost all sense of time and space and we're, we're transported into another life. Um, and, and sometimes a- that mm-hmm. other life um, can be a real other life, right? In other words, not just an escapist moment or a moment of having empathy, but in addition to that, maybe it shows us how we can live differently um, uh, by understanding how other people live. Um, And that is powerful and scary to some people who would like to maintain control how their children live. You know, Adam, I I just want to jump in here and just say uh, something about the fact that children and probably everybody else is they are attracted to things that are potentially forbidden. And we'll really get into this when we talk about comic books in the 40s and 50s in the final segment. But, you know, there's a reason your book is called A Tale Dark and Grim. There may be many reasons. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, right away, and, it, you know, you've written about the Goosebumps franchise too. There's something about, oh, this is a book maybe somebody would tell me I shouldn't be reading, is, you know, the greatest on-ramp ever, as opposed to, this will considerably improve my character and outlook about life. I definitely <laughs> want to read this book. But, yeah, run with that idea. Well, yeah, I think um, – and. I think we're going to be talking about fairy tales a little later. I hope I'm not giving anything away there. Um, you know, in fairy tales, there's this idea of the forest, the dark forest, and what every fairy tale character needs to do, including Belle in Beauty and the Beast, is go into that forest. And children are similarly tempted to go into that forest. And the reason is they want to test themselves. They want to grow. A child's only imperative is to grow. That's what they need to do. And so to go into a place that might be a little scary or a little threatening, a little different from where they've come from, a place where the people who control their lives, like me and my wife, (laughs) can't control them anymore and maybe are afraid for them to go, that is where they want to go. Now, some kids, for some kids, it's books like mine, scary, a little bit bloody. Um, Other kids, like my daughter, it's kissing, gross. But They want to go into that new world and explore it and see how they feel about it, see how they fare there. Right. And that's very much. Yeah, go ahead, Carol. Yeah. And it's and it's a safe reality for for them because they can step into the shoes of a character, right, of a book. And like you're talking about fairy tales and and it's a quest. There's a quest in all the fairy tales, you know, and there's so many other issues. It's exciting that you're talking about them. But it's they're not really facing that in real time. So it gives them a perspective of it. That's that whole idea of transporting, uh, which is, is so in, engaging and interesting for, for kids. And, um, and you know, the idea of, in fairy tales that good versus evil is the triumphant is, is kind of interesting, too. You know, when we're talking about banned books and, 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 and changing topics, fairy tales with so many banned books are um, banned because of mysticism or magic, right? And th- which right now, of course, there's so many other issues as well, but many of them. And you look at something like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, who is, you know, a devout Christian, and they're so symbolic of, 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 
Christian values and uh, the lion is, you know, the Christ figure and all of that. And yet that book was banned because of, of magic. So all of these kinds of things that we, we keep from kids, but who, how many children through the years have adored that book or Harry Potter or, um, oh, the wrinkle in time. I'm trying to think of others. Oh, there's so banned. many of them. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you both about this. Um, so, first of all, since you mentioned C.S. Lewis, Adam, you know, C.S. Lewis's whole idea that a children's book that feels exclusively like a children's book is probably not going to be a really good children's book if it's, as, if it's the kind of thing that an adult would get nothing out of. And so when I was growing up, this is going to really date me, but um, I started reading a bunch of books by Booth Tarkington called – they were called the Penrod books, Penrod and Sam. They were about these two boys. And, and they were written actually initially, as I understand it, for adults to help adults either understand or laugh at their children. Uh, but they were written in such an adult tone that, that it was intriguing. It was for all the reasons C.S. Lewis says, you know, I didn't feel patronized um, and I had to look some words up and that was fine. But I really felt like I was sort of getting this interesting perspective. Now, there's a problem with Penrod and Sam, and that is that there are two young black boys in this book and their name in these books and their names are Herman and Vermin and they are caricatures. They are there for comic relief. They're not treated unkindly and, and and they're not made unadmirable, but they just don't really work right now and, and they are offensive. And so that's the other kind of banning that goes on, Adam, or banning or maybe sort of hyper curating, right? There are books, somewhat, somebody's planning to, today somewhere in America, somebody's going to ban Huck Finn. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? What's the case for or against that kind of curation? Yeah, I think in that case, and I'm sure Professor St. George has more to say on the subject than I do, but I think in that case, um, curation is the right word, right? Um, giving a kid uh, Huck Finn when they don't have the context for understanding how uh, Jim is spoken about uh, and spoken to, how he's characterized, can be harmful. It can certainly reinforce stereotypes that already exist in our society that have been damaging for 400 years and more. And without proper context, kids might think, oh, this is correct. Now, in that case, it's pretty extreme. Hopefully, our kids these days know better than that. But there are uh, gradations where it's, it's more subtle, where kids may not understand that this is a, a harmful trope. On the other hand, um, Huck Finn is still uh, really valuable in many ways on a literary and emotional level. And so if the kid is educated about what's going on in the book and the ways in which uh, Mark Twain is benighted from his time and then other places where he was an eternally wise person. I think that children should be allowed to, or young people should be allowed to encounter literature in the fullness of its complexity. I think throwing out the baby with the bathwater is a mistake, but I also think we don't want to let the baby drown in the bath. Carol St. George, your thoughts about this. I think that it's important, um, as you're saying, Adam, uh, that we look at it at, with a historical lens as well. And we scaffold books for kids. You know, we have all these metaphors, these reading teachers that we are. Um, <laughs> we build an argument and we can, you know, construct an argument and that kind of thing. But we scaffold books and 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 put it into a historical perspective and understanding. F parents can do that. Um, as well when you discuss a book with the kids. But certainly in school, I think it's really important not to um, to ban things that are off offensive, but to allow it to be part of a conversation that enlightens and ed educates. 
and explains where we've been and 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 why we're not there any any longer whether it's you know gender or sexuality race all of those kinds american history um it really is problematic when we when we um uh, tend to take away all of those kinds of things that we build our history on and and the good history of change right Oh, yeah. So the good history of change. Yes. I just we're going to have to close this segment. I do want to say that the, obviously there are two audiences for things like Penrod and Sam or Huck Finn's. There's a audience of white kids and there's also an audience of black kids who may be very triggered or fearful or made to feel unsafe by some of the depictions and language. And both of those audiences have to be talked to and, and helped out. But I think in somewhat different ways. Uh, we're going to take a little break here. Thank you so much to Carol St. George, uh, who is a professor of teaching and curriculum and director of reading and literacy at the Warner School of Education at the University of Rochester. We'll take a break. Adam will come back. We are going to talk about fairy tales. We're also bringing back Maria Tatar from a previous show. I bring my books with me to love so that I didn't have to run. Cause the pages built a temporary shield from the forces that rejected me. Those who never protected me. And for a while it all just seems so Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Once upon a time... In a far-off kingdom, more than anything, lived a fair maiden, a sad young lad, I wish, and a childless baker, more than life, I wish, with his more wife, more than anything, more than the moon, I wish, the king is giving a festival, more than life, I wish, I wish to go to the festival, more than riches, I wish my cow would give us some milk, more than anything, I wish we had a child, he's proud, I could listen to the whole thing of that, but um, and I have many times. Uh, it's time to talk about fairy tales. Still with us is Adam Goodwitz, a best-selling author of A Tale Dark and Grim uh, and its companions, um, as well as The Inquisitor's Tale, The Unicorn Rescue Society, etc. The ever-popular etc. Maria Tatar is back with us, too, a research professor of folklore and mythology at Harvard University. Her latest book is The Heroine with 1001 Faces. So, Maria... We're going to talk about fairy tales, and maybe it's important to say, without going all Philippe Arias about this, that the idea probably even of s- stories that are just for children is might be a fairly recent one, and that they probably weren't called fairy tales back in some of the early times when they are, were being told. Give us a little historical perspective on this. 
Uh, yes, uh, great question, because my colleagues uh, now are moving toward the uh, the, the phrase uh, wonder tales instead of fairy tales, because if you look at the fairy tales, so-called fairy tales, there are actually very few fairies in them, unless you go to the British canon. So these were what, I, I love what John Updike says, he calls the fairy tales the television and pornography of an earlier age. <laughs> And uh, so they were a part of an adult storytelling culture. Uh, adult, I mean, there were children around and you could say it was a multi-generational audience. And once the kids went to bed, went to sleep, you could become more melodramatic. Uh, so the stories are violent, they're body, they're scatological, they're risque, uh, they're pretty spicy. Uh, you get uh, scenes like the one in the tower when Rapunzel is confronted by the enchantress and Rapunzel, who's been getting these visits from a prince, says to the enchantress, why are my clothes getting so tight? Uh, or an Italian version of Sleeping Beauty where Sleeping Beauty is raped by a king while she's sleeping. So definitely adult fair, but uh, these are stories that then migrated into the culture of childhood so the childhood of culture became the culture of childhood. And there's stories that suddenly uh, developed a point, a moral lesson. Uh, so many of the early collections actually have a moral appended to the end of the story. And I think now, uh, just to bring it up to the present, we're sort of going back to the idea of a multi-generational audience. And we have versions of Little Red Riding Hood that are for kids. Uh, we have some for uh, the YA crowd. We have them for uh, adult audiences as well. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and when the Harry Potter books first came out in England, um, they you could get a cover that didn't look like a children's book. So that if you were reading it on the tube, <laughs> nobody would re realize that you were an adult reading a YA novel. Uh, so yeah, we're back to C.S. Lewis's point. But so Adam, you're pretty good friends with Hansel and Gretel. You've worked with them. Um, the template, the Hansel and Gretel template is scary as hell, right? I mean, you have this, you know, woodsman or whatever the hell he is. <laughs> His wife dies uh, and he's got these two kids and then he marries somebody else and she's having trouble, you know, feeding everybody. An easy solution, leave them out in the woods. There are a couple different versions uh, of this. I think one time they use pebbles and they get back, but uh, then the next time they use breadcrumbs, not so great. This, you know, and then they meet a witch who wants to eat them. <laughs> so, I don't know. Help us understand why this has been such a good story to tell to children. That's such a great question. Um, and for me, the scariest part of the Grimm's version of the Grimm's Hansel and Gretel is the one that we are familiar with. It's the one I know. Um, the scariest part of Hansel and Gretel is the very beginning when the father is sitting in bed with his new wife. Um, and the wife turns to the father and says, we're running out of food. We should take our children out in the forest and leave them there. And the father says, no, that's terrible. And she says, no, no, but think about it. And he goes, <laughs> okay, you're right. <laughs> and in that moment, the parents become so humanized. They are no longer a witch or a monster. They are parents wrestling with a difficult parenting or like a homekeeping problem. And the solution is letting their children starve in the forest. And so the whole thing is scary. But that for me is the most chilling. And it's the reason why I'll uh, in a shameless plug in my 
podcast Grim, Grim or Grimmest, where I retell grim fairy tales uh, and I tell them live in front of kids and and um, and you hear all that. Um, what I hear is that it's a, a family listening experience. It's like a, it's good for like long car rides and things like that, because these fairy tales tap into dynamics that children are feeling inside of themselves, but also families are experiencing within the family unit. And that is what makes them, I think, so lasting and powerful. It's not for a kid to go off on their own. It's for us all to come together and understand our shared humanity through these sometimes very dark fairy tales. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, now I love the long car ride idea. If you kids don't shut up back there, I'm going to so Hansel and Gretel you, uh, you know, at the next <laughs> rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike, all right? Um, so... But Maria, I think some of this is also, and I know this is something that's that's uh, near to your heart. There's also a lot of childhood curiosity uh, about what's going on behind the scenes. Another of my mentors, Roy Blunt Jr., once wrote about a feature. I think it was like in Ladies Home Journal or something, but it was called "Can This Marriage Be Saved?" Uh, and it was like a marriage counseling thing, but. As a kid, Roy thought, so are there marriages that can't be saved? What's going on here? And because at some level, you know that the story of stability that you might be told by the adult world is probably probably has some holes in it. And, and maybe this is one of the way things we like to do as kids is like, what, what else aren't you telling me? Oh, yes. Well, I, th I thought immediately of Bluebeard, which is a tale that was told again by adults to other adults, which is about how marriage is an institution haunted by the threat of violence and murder. So this was a story that uh, circulated that was told in sewing circles, spinning rooms, to help women navigate marriage. Marriage, which was sometimes to an older man who could be dark and dangerous. Uh, so with all of these stories, I see about Hansel and Gretel and how when Adam was speaking, I realized I'm of two minds about that story. On the one hand, do I really want to tell that story or read that story to children, to my grandchildren? Uh, because Gretel pushes an old woman into the oven and these kids take over the house of this old lady living <laughs> in the forest alone. But on the other hand, and that's where I become a protector. But then I also slide into the role of emancipator because this is a tutorial about survival. The kids learn how to do things with words in the end. Uh, that is, what do they do? They eavesdrop. They listen to the parents plotting uh, their, basically, their their death. You know, they're plotting their the plan to take them into the woods. And then Hansel tricks the stepmother. And uh, then when they tell lies to the witch, also when they start eating pieces of the house, they tell her that it's just a little mouse. And then in the end, what does Gretel do but use a ruse to get the witch to climb into the oven? Because if you remember, the witch wants her to get into the oven. And then finally, at the end, what happens? Gretel summons help from a duck to take them back home. And what does she do? She uses poetry. So there's this wonderful evolution in the story for magic. You were talking about magic earlier and the uh, sort of pushback against that. But the fairy tale begins with magic. And I think it ends in a way that communicates to the child that you don't need magic, that there is power in 
language and power in courage and in cunning and getting smart. Right. This is why mm-hmm. Professor Tatar is my favorite folklore scholar, because I have been oh, telling Adam, Hansel and Gretel and for 13 years author. and I never thought of it in that way. It's beautiful. Yeah. No. And I, I never I was surprised to hear you begin with a certain protectiveness towards the, you know, the woman who gets pushed into the oven, which is, you know, it's it's Hannah Lecter. Hannibal's mom is getting pushed into the oven. Um, but but I think also and I'd love both of you to talk about this a little bit. Maybe the other thing is because with everything, least what we were saying about Huck Finn a few minutes ago, contextualizing is really important. So, Adam Goodwitz, I'm thinking maybe you, know, you tell Hansel and Gretel and then you go. Let's unpack this a little bit. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, there's a way in which all of this talk is very interesting. And as Maria is suggesting, it really is a talk also about agency, right? You get in a jam, you figure out how to get out of it. Right. And that's pretty cool. But yeah, maybe Adam just like, is that what we need to do is kind of unpack these stories a little bit together? I think, yeah, giving children space to unpack them with you. I think that one of the things that kills a story is when we do put a moral at the end of it. And I can't tell you how many very well-read, very well-educated people I've spoken to who have told me, oh, fairy tales are cautionary tales that teach children not to go into the woods by themselves because they'll get eaten by a wolf. And while there were certainly editions of fairy tales that have been used in that way, that is not the value of fairy tales. It wasn't, as Professor Tatar talked about, the original purpose of them, nor is it the purpose, should it be the purpose of them now. It The purpose of them now is to share them intergenerationally. And then, yes, to let your reactions to them bubble up to the surface. And so I would not tell, I tell Snow White at a lot of schools, It is a really bloody, scary story. And what's most interesting about it is the relational jealousy between the mother and the daughter. Jealousy in both directions between the mother and the daughter is something that I think every family can relate to. And so I wouldn't tell the story and then say, so this story was about never. (laughs) But I would open up to the child an opportunity to talk about how it made them feel not just after the story, but in the weeks after the story. So, Maria, uh, a little behind-the-scenes look. I've got the Slack running uh, next to me right now, and the two producers working on this show are, are both saying, I don't remember Hansel and Gretel being like that. And, and that's a really important point, which is we have the opportunity. There isn't really a canonical version of most of these stories, and, and there shouldn't be, right? We have the opportunity to tell them in different ways and, and maybe take them in different places. But talk about that sort of oral, repeated nature of the story. Oh, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, there are, you know, my students sometimes talk about, oh, we just read the original version. We read the Grimm's. Uh, well, behind the Grimm's is a whole history of stories and oral storytelling cultures. So there are multiple versions of Hansel and Gretel. We, we couldn't possibly collect them all because they were told and not, not written down. Uh, so, uh, we we have have these stories, and today we don't have to be faithful to the Grimm's. We can hit the refresh button as Adam does. We can make it new. We can make the story our own. And what Adam said about talking about the story is so important. I think. Let's say you do go back to the Grimm's version of the story, which is pretty scary. Then you're is still in the safe space of once upon a time. And if it's too scary for the kid, you stop and you change the story. 
and you make it your own, and then you talk about the story. Uh, I have to quote Einstein here, who said, if you want intelligent children, read them fairy tales. If hmm. you want more intelligent children, read them more fairy tales. Because these are, what are they? They're riddles inside an enigma wrapped in a conundrum. I can't quite get the quote right from, from Churchill, but they're these mysterious stories that get us thinking. And uh, the minute we finish a story like Hansel and Gretel or Sleeping Beauty, we want to talk about it. It's almost a reflex. And that's, I think, how kids get smarter when they share the story, talk about it, react to it, create their own narrative um, and are resistant to the moral or the message that might be embedded in the tale. Because Adam's exactly right. The best way to kill a story is to put a message on it, a single message. There's never one. There are many different messages. Yeah. I think, by the way, the phrase is a riddle wrapped in an enigma placed inside a chicken that's also placed inside a duck. It's basically a, a turducken. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and Maria, you know, I mean, we can tell these Churchill quotes just like fairy tales. We just change them around you know, however we need them, right? Um, so you guys have both been so great and you're terrific together. You're a wonderful team. Adam Gidwitz is best-selling author of A Tale Dark and Grim and many other things, including his new book, Medium Long with Poisonous Snakes, which he hasn't written yet. Uh, and Maria Tatar is research professor of folklore and mythology at Harvard University. Her latest book is The Heroine with 1001 Faces. Uh, we have to take a little break. We're going to come back and talk about how comic books got ruined forever. Just kidding. They're not ruined, but they were much scarier back in the day. Episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 on any podcast app. If there's a place for reviews and ratings, give us lots of stars and be sure to mention the high thread count in our sheets and pillowcases, as well as the complimentary breakfast buffet. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. And today, the technical producer of the show is Kat Pastor, as pretty much as usual. And then we have a special treat here. This show is produced by our intern, Stacey Otto, with a little bit of help from our senior producer, Lily Tyson. Um, it's been a lot of fun, and it's going to get even more interesting now, possibly. Um, so uh, before I even introduce the guest, let me just sort of contextualize this a little bit, because it's hard for people to imagine this. But in the 1940s and 1950s, there were all kinds of comic books. There were comic books that were like just Bible renderings and things like that. But there was a genre, a very popular genre of comic books that had a lot of blood dripping on them and bosomy, bosom heaving women and a lot of lust and horror and violence. Uh, and they had names like Tales from the Crypt, Weird Mysteries, and The Vault of Horror. Uh, and at a certain point, uh, and a lot of them, allegedly 40% of these comics were produced right here in Connecticut where I'm sitting. 
uh, particularly by a company called Charlton that was based in Derby, Connecticut. Uh, but there was kind of a national dialogue that went on about this, or maybe just a monologue. Uh, and, and here to talk about that and maybe even give us a little bit more historical context is Carol Tilly, comics historian, library and educator, and youth advocate. She's a professor in the faculty of the School of Information Sciences at the University of Illinois. Carol Tilly, welcome to our conversation. Hey, thanks, Colin. It's great to be here. So, I mean, comic books have always, comic books and even comic strips have always been considered kind of a marginalized culture uh, and, and maybe kind of a forbidden thing. In, in Ladies' Home Journal in 1909, comic strips in the newspaper were called sources of extraordinary, extraordinary stupidity and an influence for repulsive and often depraving vulgarity so colossal that it is rapidly taking on the dimensions <laughs> of nothing short of a national crime against our children. <laughs> so this, this is an attitude that persists across the decades. Tell us a little bit more about this. What's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. So the the Ladies Home Journal article you're referring to was part of this uh, sort of the first national dialogue around uh, comics and their acceptability as reading material for kids. And this was taking place during the period when comic strips were uh, beginning to be newly syndicated uh, into papers across the U.S. And a, a lot of adults, uh, particularly teachers, religious leaders, folks like that, were very concerned about the possible moral implications of kids reading these comic strips. Uh, and, and then we fast forward, uh, but not much happened uh, as a consequence of, of around 10 years worth of concerns that were raised. But we fast forward to the, the 30s and into the 40s as comic books are uh, birthed and, and begin to take off as a really popular format for the medium of comics. And we start hearing a lot of the same arguments uh, about comic books, uh, except even a little bit more uh, scintillating, I guess. You know, Sterling North in 1940, he was a literary critic uh, in Chicago. Uh, later wrote children's books, but he called comic books uh, a national disgrace. He said they were a poisonous mushroom growth uh, and like a hypodermic injection of sex and violence. And yes. it just got weirder from there. But I think, Carol, <laughs> one of the things that it really bumps up against is the kind of post-World War II Eisenhower era, Eisenhower era of sense of kind of ill-advised national cheeriness, right? This is a great time. Everything's great. We're great. Everybody's getting a house. Uh, you know, there's just happiness everywhere. And and these comic books offered a much, you know, a real alternative view of the world where horrible things can happen and people get their heads cut off and stuff like that. And, and I think they were regarded kind of almost of a piece with the the, the the fear of communism, uh, the the fears of homosexuality, anything that was kind of other capital O was especially scary during this era, and so big comic book wars broke out, right? Absolutely, there were um, comic book uh, burnings a across the country. There were laws in various municipalities uh, that restricted the sales of some of the types of comic books you're talking about. And this is a period of time where, you know, something like 95, 96% of kids 12 and under were reading comic books and comic strips in large quantities. Um, the, the sales of comic books, for instance, peaked at around the, say, 700 million to 1 billion new copies annually in the early 1950s. So 
there was a lot of comics reading happening. It wasn't just all kids, but kids were certainly driving uh, a lot of these sales. So some, uh, and, so, and that, yeah. So some of this oh, culminates it, in 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 hearings, literal yes. congressional hearings. April 1954, Estes Kefover, the senator from Tennessee, uh, is having these hearings about how horrible comic books yep. are, and he questions. He has this great exchange with Bill Gates. Bill Gates is kind of a legendary figure in all this. He Absolutely. was one of the heads of EC Comics, and eventually converted one of his EC Comics, Mad, into Mad Magazine, thus thus avoiding. Uh, not necessarily intentionally, the comics code that we'll talk about. But so Kefover says, he holds up a cover and he goes, this seems to be a man with a bloody axe holding a woman's head up, which has been severed <laughs> from her body. Do you think that is in good taste? And Gaines answers, yes, sir, I do, for the cover of a horror comic. A cover in bad yes. taste, for example, <laughs> might be defined as holding the head a little higher so that the neck could be seen dripping blood from it and moving the body over a little further so that the neck of the body could be seen to be bloody. Um, so, which is a fine <laughs> distinction. But, I mean, it almost seems kind of ludicrous right now. But it was people, parents were genuinely alarmed and they wanted something done, right? They, they, they really did. Um, and I, I want to like take this conversation back and tie it into a, a couple of things that Adam and Carol and Maria have said earlier. Uh, and, and that's simply that, especially the kids who were reading the, the EC comics that Bill Gaines and his company produced, they were some of the most uh, articulate and forward thinking and uh, self-advocate advocatorial kids out there. Um, many of them wrote letters to the Senate to essentially say, hey, don't take our comics away. Um, if you look at these comics, how can you possibly think they're anything worse than Grimm's fairy tales? Uh, and uh, this was a common trope in the letters that kids wrote. Uh, and I think that a lot of young people really did resist and, and push back against uh, the adults who were trying to be censorious uh, with comics. I should they say weren't successful. <laughs> I should say that I grew up for the first my first uh, sort of ten years in the journalism profession. My managing editor mm -hmm. was, was a guy named Irving Krautsau, who had written a four part series about this that became a big part of this whole conversation. Mm -hmm. um, a, a, as was a book called Seduction of the Innocent, which yes. we only have by Frederick Wortham. I don't think we have enough time to talk too much about that, but we should talk about what they did do. So, by the time I was a sure. kid, kid buying comics, so it's like maybe you know in the mid sixties. You would often get a comic. I don't know when this came in, but it had this funny little thing in the upper right-hand corner, as I recall, and it was shaped like a postage stamp. It had like kind of serrated edges all around, like a like a postage mm -hmm. stamp. Explain that postage stamp. What was it? Where did it come from? What did it mean? Well, it came uh, directly as a consequence of those hearings that you talked about, and and Senator Kefauver and and the line of questions that were raised, uh, and the. Mm -hmm. The stamp was the uh, seal of approval of the Comics Code Authority, which was a uh, an office created by a hastily assembled group of comics publishers <laughs> who were trying to keep the, the federal government from uh, sort of butting in and, and restricting comic sales in a legal way. So the publishers joined together, created this thing called the Comics Code, hired someone uh, nominally independent uh, to enforce it. Uh, and uh, the Comics Code was in effect, although uh, with significant revisions, until 2011. Uh, and so for kids like uh, you and for me, uh, 
to buy comics on the newsstand, they had to have that comics code seal of approval. Oh, um, were were there comics still being put out that didn't have the seal of approval? And 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 what did that? I guess that's maybe the beginning of sure. the idea of underground comics. Well, actually, even in the fifties, uh, some of the biggest selling comics uh, did not carry the seal of approval, and those were from Dell Comics, who uh, were selling millions and millions and millions of copies of of media tie-in comics and funny animal comics. And they had their own code uh, and they didn't see the need to get involved. Um, they they saw the code as a, a way of really tainting uh, the company's name and reputation. Uh, but it wasn't until, you're right, until the 60s uh, with underground comics and then into the 70s as some of the larger publishers like Marvel and DC began to push back that the code really began to lose some of its uh, effect. There is, I, I'm, we're out of time here, but we should just say, I don't know, <laughs> I, 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 there's so much more I'd love to talk to you about, but there is, I, I talk to people who have a real nostalgia for, for those old mm-hmm. EC comic books. People, you know, in their adult lives at least fondly yeah. recall them. And maybe in about 45 seconds, you could kind of connect it to the whole conversation you've heard, that idea of forbiddenness, that idea of this is what nobody wants you to see. You know, absolutely. Um, ECs, they weren't huge sellers. They were uh, 350, 400,000 issues or copies per issue sold, but the readers were uh, very avid uh, in loving uh, those titles. Uh, And they did. They, They were aimed at a more mature audience. They didn't talk down to kids. Uh, and a lot of them, you know, addressed real issues around racism, around uh, sexual violence, around war, um, as well as, you know, the sort of just generally gory kinds of things that you touched on earlier. Uh, but EC Comics uh, really uh, gave birth to modern comics fandom uh, and uh, really changed the lives of a lot of young readers. Carol Tilly, you're great. We're going to have you back for something else. I, <laughs> I already have an idea, uh, a comics, comics historian. Thanks also to superstar intern Stacy Addo for producing this show. Uh, and thanks to you for listening. We'll be back with something else tomorrow. Seven inch in the computer.